Influencing popular culture, politics, and everything in between. The local station takes you ringside as we discuss the crazy world that is professional wrestling. This is Going Ringside with The Local Station. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Going Ringside. So glad you could join us. Um, once again, as always, please continue to support the program. Spread the word about it wherever you would interact with a wrestling fan, in person or online. Tell people in wrestling groups about it, wherever you're at. Um, trying to get the word out there, give me a follow at, at Going Ringside on Instagram. Put a lot of our content out there. So, um, yeah, help us spread the word about the show. We are um, today tackling probably the hardest story in the history of the pro wrestling industry. Um, I don't think there's ever been a tragedy as bad as the one that involved Chris Benoit. When in 2007, the former world champion killed his family, including his wife Nancy and his young son Daniel, and then took his own life. Um, in a horrific crime that spanned about three days at their home in the suburbs of Atlanta. So it is just um, a tragedy that I don't know that was ever really, you know, that they'd ever really dealt with something of that magnitude in pro wrestling. Some have said it almost um, ended the industry. It was so bad, even Congress started taking a look at it because there were so many concerns following such a horrific tragedy. So today, we're going to explore it. We're going to explore what happened. We have a few interviews on tap. One I wanted to bring back on a recent episode, we spoke with former wrestler Mark Merrow. And one of the things he talked about was speaking out. He was one of the most public critics of WWE following this tragedy when it was on all the news networks, and it was really the story of the week um, as the nation just came to grips with this horror that had happened. And um, we hear from Mark Merrow, who spoke out and says he helped push for change in the industry to make it a safer industry where there was less of a possibility of things like CTE or drug abuse in the industry. Um, WWE had to respond. Um, it was just a mess for what happened that just no one could believe anything as horrible as that would happen for a man who they had known for many, many years. We're also going to be talking to a forensic psychologist, um, Dr. Stephen Bloomfield. I've worked with him many times. He's often called to be a uh, to testify in murder trials, has interviewed several uh, killers in his time. I've been in the courtroom many times when I've covered as a journalist uh, murder trials, and he's looked at things like um, killers and their motivations. He didn't know wrestling, but he analyzed this case with me, and we talked to him about that a little later on in the show. And the changes that have come in WWE, um, A, how they responded um, the night it happened, because they learned about this in the hours going into a raw taping on a Monday night, didn't realize Chris Benoit was the killer here. Um, and then a lot of changes with respect to CTE and substance abuse in the industry. We're going to analyze that. Um, so I kind of wanted to start this podcast by talking about who Chris and Nancy Benoit were. And, and of course, their son, Daniel, was only seven years old at the time of his death. Um, Chris Benoit, um, you know, a lot of people know his story. He's from Canada, the Calgary area. He started in the mid-1980s, 
um, training in Calgary and Stampede Wrestling. Stampede Wrestling was the Hart family territory. Uh, Brett and Owen Hart's father, Stu Hart, ran the territory up there, and Chris kind of got in the business there. People have said he was his idol in life growing up was Dynamite Kid, who was part of the British Bulldogs, and Dynamite Kid was often well-known as a wrestler who was ahead of his time. Um, Dynamite Kid was kind of ahead of his time for the how um, just talented of a performer in ring he was compared to many other wrestlers of that time frame in the 1980s. And Chris Benoit patterned a lot of his um, style after Dynamite Kid. And so he, he trains with the Hart family in Stampede Wrestling. There were talk that he would train in the Hart family dungeon, which was like the basement where a lot of wrestlers said they would train and get stretched, as they call it, and learn the, the kind of the tricks of the trade from Stu Hart and the Hart family, and he learned in Stampede Wrestling. And Chris Benoit, and this is important, we're going to talk about it more as the podcast goes on, was not a big guy. Chris Benoit is, I think, an inch taller than me. He's 5'11", um, but he was muscular. Um, and, and I always thought Chris Benoit seemed like the type of guy who was good at the phrase punching up. And by that mean, he was in an industry filled with much larger competitors, and he needed to stand out. Um, so we're going to analyze that coming up. But one of the things is Chris, while he was, you know, my size and height, he was a big, powerful, muscular man. Steroids were big in pro wrestling back in that era. And that was obviously something people looked at with respect to Chris Benoit. We'll analyze that as the podcast unfolds. But he, he starts with um, Stampede in the mid-1980s. And then eventually I think he goes to Japan learns there. He eventually goes in very early ECW, Extreme Championship Wrestling. Um, and he has some early stints with um, WCW, World Championship Wrestling. Now, Chris Benoit, you know, I've always thought there's kind of a few different styles of wrestling. You have what Hulk Hogan was doing in the 1980s, which was a little more cartoon-oriented, where Hulk would, uh, it, it wouldn't look as brutal. It would look, you know, Hulk would do his big boot to the face and his leg drop and pose, and it didn't look, it looked almost corny sometimes. It didn't look like brutal. And then on the other side, you have the ECW guys, like Mick Foley, just barbed wire matches with um, two-by-fours and going into flaming tables, just crazy, crazy stuff that drew its own debate on whether or not it was good and obviously could cause severe injuries. All of wrestling causes severe injuries. Even what Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy were doing in the 1980s, you'd hurt yourself. In the ECW, the extreme stuff, you'd hurt yourself as well with the, you know, the flames and the thumbtacks and the weapons. Chris Benoit, I always thought, was, his, was kind of a third category. He didn't necessarily, I mean, he'd do the table spots and stuff, but he didn't rely on, you know, the weapons and the, the huge, crazy spots. He was just a brutal fighter who looked really real when he did it. Brutal punches, kicks. I mean, when you watch Chris Benoit and wrestling fans have to have a suspension of disbelief because it's a predetermined outcome. Some people call it fake. Others just call it predetermined because it's essentially you're really fighting, but it's scripted and the guys know how to not hurt each other. Chris Benoit was a master of that to the point where he would brutally fight people night after night, and it looked real. And you could tell when you watched a Chris Benoit match, it hurt. He would make the other guy look like they are just beating the tar out of him. And they were, with punches, with kicks. 
And let's talk about what Chris Benoit's um, primary move, one of his finishing moves. So he had two finishing moves, really. He had the crippler crossface, but the other one was his flying headbutt, and this is important. So Chris Benoit many times would get onto the top rope and he would jump a good 10 feet or so across the ring and headbutt his opponent. And that was his finisher. So Chris is a professional and he likely knows how to do this without crippling himself, even though he was called the Canadian Crippler because they would imply that, you know, he would cripple his other opponents. But he would do these headbutts. Now, obviously, he knows how to do it without severely injuring himself. But keep in mind, Chris Benoit didn't do this once or twice. He was doing it night after night. He was putting his body on the line every night when he would wrestle, doing that headbutt spot a lot, the flying headbutt where he flies, comes down on the mat, his head makes contact with his opponent. You do that every night for years and years, probably starts to take a toll. And I've seen some interviews where people would talk about how many concussions they'd had in wrestling. One of the quotes I saw in one of the documentaries that's been done on this, um, I know Dark Side of the Ring has done one, Chris uh, Jericho on his uh, Talk is Jericho podcast had a lengthy interview with Chris Benoit's sister in 2016. There's other uh, podcasts out there and other documentaries out there, but I've heard it said that Chris Benoit didn't know how many concussions he'd had. He'd had a lot. Um, Chris Nowinski. Uh, as a former wrestler turned a neuroscientist, and he's been one of the outspoken critics and one of the people at the forefront of, of analyzing CTE um, to see, and, and he was really, he talked to Chris Benoit about this. So we'll talk a little more about that a little later on in the podcast. But you can get an idea of what Chris Benoit was doing as a performer. At the same time, his wife Nancy gets her start in the late 80s or so. Um, in various wrestling promotions. Um, I remember her first showing up in WCW in the late 80s with the Steiner Brothers. She came in dressed as a nerd. That was her character, like a nerdy wrestling fan, even though she was a beautiful woman sitting in the front row of the matches. And eventually, they would always put her on camera and they brought her in to kind of be the Steiner Brothers um, escort to the ring, really more with Rick Steiner. So that happens, and then eventually she gets rid of that gimmick and turns heel, becomes uh, bad, and she takes on the, the character of woman. She was a woman, but her actual name on camera was woman, and she would manage uh, tag teams like Doom with Butch Reed and Ron Simmons. Um, she was a good manager, just she seemed like an evil character, and that was her character. In real life, she had married Kevin Sullivan, who you probably know Kevin Sullivan. Uh, uh, Sullivan, a famous booker and a famous wrestler, and he would always kind of have his evil, dark um, gimmick, almost it seemed like satanic at times. And then he put together the Dungeon of Doom in WCW. There was, he was like their evil leader. So Kevin Sullivan was a very well-known performer, and they got married. So Chris Benoit is coming up in WCW, and they know each other you know, very well. They, uh, Nancy and Chris and Kevin Sullivan, they interacted a lot over the years. And Chris, he's so good at what he does and making it look so real, so brutal, that eventually Ric Flair recomprises the four horsemen and brings Chris Benoit in one of the horsemen. Another guy who had a similar kind of style was Dean Malenko, also shorter in stature, even shorter than Chris, but a man of a thousand holds, as they'd call him, and Chris just seemed like the best of the best as far as the, the activity of actually physically wrestling in the ring. He could do anything. So it was, uh, it was Rick, Arn Anderson, Chris Benoit, 
um, Dean Malenko and eventually Mongo Steve McMichael. Um, so they're there and they start the horsemen, which the, the gimmick of the horsemen is essentially we're the best of the best, we're the cream of the crop. Nancy starts being one of their escorts. And this is before a lot of the females on camera were kind of hypersexualized in the late 90s. Um, it was Miss Elizabeth, it was Nancy Benoit, and it was Steve McMichael, uh, Deborah McMichael when she was still married to Mongo. And they would come and they would escort the four horsemen to the ring. Primarily, they were Rick's valets. And they would wear these elegant ball gowns um, and come to the ring and escort them down. So while this is happening, there was an interesting uh, feud. Kevin Sullivan, by all accounts, says Kevin Sullivan was the guy who booked the feud. He booked a feud between him and Chris. And the storyline would be him and Nancy on camera were having an affair and Kevin was jealous. And a lot of people in the industry is, um, have said Kevin Sullivan booked himself into a real-life divorce because during that, Chris is still married, Nancy's still married, they kind of start falling for each other, and afterwards, eventually, they both end up getting divorced and getting together. So that happens. I remember seeing those matches when I would watch all the old Monday Nitros during the 90s. Um, I remember that gimmick, and it was kind of almost uncomfortable to watch because you kind of sensed there, this was kind of, you know, storyline and reality kind of be coming together, which it was. Um, Chris Benoit would be here in Jacksonville fighting a lot on Nitro tapings, and something changed in 96 for WCW, which kind of illustrates what Chris Benoit had to do as a performer. The NWO, the New World Order, comes in. Consider who that is. Consider the size. I always thought it looked unfair when I would watch them on camera because you had the four horsemen, which were maybe your, one of your primary heel groups, stables. You had Rick, he's maybe 6'1 or so, Arn about the same. Then you have Chris, 5'11", Dean Malenko, shorter than that. Contrast that with the NWO. Hulk Hogan and Scott Hall are around 6'7". Kevin Nash, 6'10", 6'11". They bring in the giant. He's seven foot, seven foot one. It just didn't seem fair. Why this is important, why I said Chris seemed to punch above his weight, is because despite all this, Chris would be, would really go with his um, rabid Wolverine moniker. That was his other nickname. Like he just wouldn't give up. He would fight and fight and fight and fight until he couldn't fight anymore. And while WCW in the late 90s really seemed rigged, like the mid-card guys like a Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero, Perry Saturn, they couldn't really get a leg up because it was always Hulk Hogan and his friends, like Hall and Nash would always get the top booking. And these guys just couldn't make it. But when I remember watching Chris Benoit's match, like if Chris Benoit wins against Kevin Nash, you'd know Nash is probably going to win. But you'd think that Chris Benoit guy is going to give him the fight of his life because he really appeared like he would just fight, 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 and he would be brutal out there in the ring. And that was kind of how Chris Benoit was eventually able to take being a mid-carter with a top shelf. He couldn't go any higher in WCW. He kept pushing, and eventually he was made world, championship, uh, world champion. Um, so unlike guys like, I think, Eddie Guerrero, who's one of his best friends in the business, Eddie could only get so far in the industry. Same with Malenko. But Benoit got the world title while he was still in WCW. That's impressive. And then eventually, famously, he, Eddie, uh, Malenko, and Perry Saturn all jump ship. They call themselves the Radicals around the end of the century, around 2000 or so, and they go to WWE. And he goes to WWE. At this point, Nancy has left wrestling. 
they have their son Daniel around the year 2000. And they get married and uh, move to uh, northwest Atlanta where their family home was. Chris is, at this point is approaching the peak of his career. Um, Chris and Eddie really, more than Dean and Perry Saturn, got great pushes. They were world champions. Uh, Chris Benoit, the peak of his career was really when he beat Triple H for the World Heavyweight Championship as a main event at WrestleMania. That was literally the peak of the industry at that point. Chris Benoit was a champion. Um, so Benoit does this through making sure he has this huge muscular frame, even though he's not as tall as the other guys, and fighting nonstop. And that means taking a lot of punishment to his body over the years. There was talk that he had done steroids, but eventually um, stopped doing steroids. We're going to get to that a little bit, but he had a doctor prescribing him um, because, and I, I learned this when I was researching, I didn't know, when you get off steroids, you have to uh, supplement your testosterone, and he was getting, a, and he was on some sort of testosterone under doctor's care medications. That's important. We're going to talk about that a little later on. Um, so Chris Benoit does this, and he's really at the peak of his game. But there was something happening in this industry that I think is important. If you've followed wrestling for any number of years, particularly prior to the Benoit murder-suicide, you know a lot, tragically, a lot of wrestlers were dying young. You had um, Owen Hart famously fell to his death when a harness snapped at 1999 pay-per-view. That was a controversy. That was a, tra that was a tragic, uh, I guess, accident. It was horrible what happened to um, Owen Hart. But beyond that, there were a lot of guys who were dying, but it wasn't because of freak accidents. It was drug overdoses. There were suicides. There was, um, you know, heart attacks, maybe related to previous drug use. Here's just a list of some of the guys in just the years before, male and female, in just the years before Benoit, the Benoit incident had died. And there's more. I'm just naming a few. Hawk, Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning, Eddie Guerrero, Big Boss Man, Johnny Grunge used to be with Public Enemy. Miss Elizabeth died. Sherry Martell died. Mark Curtis, he was a, um, a referee who was close with Benoit, real name of uh, Brian Hildebrand. Um, and then you got other guys, you know, passing away. Um, Randy Savage passed away at some point. Test, Andrew Martin passed away. A lot of these guys, not all of them, but a lot of them were very close with Benoit when they died. Imagine having friend after friend after friend after friend or coworker, colleague dying young, unexpectedly. Probably was difficult, and it was probably difficult on Nancy as well. She was, she was close with uh, Miss Elizabeth or Sherry Martell, by all accounts. So you have that going on in your life. Um, and so... Chris is still WWE. He's actively performing. Uh, Nancy Benoit and their young son, Daniel, live at the home in, um, in uh, northwest, uh, not far from Atlanta and Georgia. And there are a lot of uh, documentation out there in all, the, in all the different documentaries that have been done, and you can search online, that Chris and Nancy were having a lot of marital issues. They were having a lot of marital issues in the years going into this. Um, so... Dark Side of the Ring did a really good interview um, when they did their Benoit tragedy. And they interview uh, Chavo Guerrero. And Chavo Guerrero talks about he and Chris were supposed to travel together to the next uh, event. 
and he starts getting odd phone calls and texts from Chris that don't make a lot of sense. Scott Armstrong, who was a referee at the time, who was always also close with uh, Chris, gets the exact same messages from not only Chris's phone, from Nancy's phone, and they think something is wrong. So Chavo goes to the event and he tells Johnny Ace, John Laurinaitis, who is the head of talent relations at that point, about what's gone on. He's like, why did you not tell anyone? So this goes up the chain of command at WWE. They're like, something's wrong. And keep in mind, this is not far. And I mentioned the other deaths, but let's specifically focus on Eddie Guerrero. In the years prior to what happened um, to Benoit, Eddie Guerrero probably... Chris Benoit's uh, best friend in the industry, if not close to it, died. And, and there's a lot of talk that it really hurt Chris bad, that his, his best friend in the business had died. Um, so obviously the industry is probably on edge about you know their talent passing away. And maybe some people had had concerns about Chris or not. Um, but it goes up the chain of command and Vince McMahon calls in a welfare check to authorities in... Um, their area outside of Atlanta. And in the Dark Side of the Ring documentary, you see uh, they talk to the, the, the old shift manager with the police agency there, went on the welfare check, was assuming it was a normal welfare check, maybe there's alcohol or something, and he was just not going to work. But then they go, have a neighbor go in, and it's, it's chronicled in Dark Side of the Ring, goes in, um, finds Daniel's body, and then it all goes crazy. Um, so I want to start with talking about how WWE responded. So keep in mind, this is the hours going into Monday Night Raw. Um, and they're probably getting bits and pieces of information from authorities. They learn Chris, Nancy, and Daniel had died. They had passed away. And Vince calls all the, the talent in and tells them the horrific news that that their, that their beloved coworker Chris and Nancy, who many knew, and this is a very close, tight-knit industry, probably many knew Daniel as well, had all died. Um, Vicky Guerrero was interviewed in that. She was obviously a recent widow because Eddie had died not too long before that. Um, it was horrific for the industry. Then controversy on the WWE side starts, but it's a controversy... Having worked in the media for 25 years, I understand. I've covered many stories where it's a breaking news situation, and many involve death and suicide. And I will say, as a journalist, and I've been on the scenes of multiple murder-suicides, they are always the hardest cases to cover as a journalist because there is, there is no justice there because the killer is also dead, and it's just horrific for everyone involved. Um, and it's usually a, a domestic situation many times, and, and it just hurts the family and everyone who knew them so much because you, you, there's, no, there's no sense of justice or closure because you're horrified at the murder, you're horrified at the suicide, and, and you ask yourself, could anything have been done? It's always very difficult as a journalist to go into that situation. Same with police. Um, so they don't have a lot of information to work with, and I've dealt with this situation many times in um, breaking news scenes, which are major breaking news scenes in the industry. We have to put them on because it's out there. We have a duty to get people their information, and it's a, it's a difficult dance. Do you put the information out? Um, how much do you put out? You may not have all the facts, 
And detectives may not have all the facts. Consider what had to happen when detectives went into this crime scene. This is a crime scene that spanned over three days. They have three bodies. They have to determine three causes of death. They have to stop. They have to get homicide detectives in there to take over the investigation because the first officer who arrived probably has to call it in, get back up. It is a process. It does not happen immediately. And this is in the hours before Raw's going on the air. And so what we do as media organizations, and I've worked with, we, you know, put out what we can and put out more information, trying not to put too much out, even though if we hear tips or rumors, we need to put out what police can confirm, particularly in homicide cases. It's kind of what WWE was going through at the time. So WWE gets this. They cancel the show. I mean, everyone's horrified. You can't have a show. And it's going out. Social media's out there already. It's probably starting to circulate that a high-profile celebrity is dead and his family is dead. It probably starts with um, Atlanta news stations, and then it quickly moves on to your network news that a high-profile um, personality in the media, Chris Benoit, is dead, and eventually it probably starts going on the news network. So WWE where everyone's going to be looking, has to figure out, how are we going to respond to this? So they go on air, and they essentially cancel the show. It was kind of similar to when Eddie Guerrero passed away and when Owen Hart passed away. The show is kind of canceled, and it just becomes a memorial to their performer. So you essentially, I don't even think they had any matches. It was just almost a memorial show to Chris Benoit for a few hours. Um, all the wrestlers spoke. Uh, I think Vince spoke. But there was a problem, because as the hours are going by, they're getting details. And you have to imagine it's not just from news reports or police. Probably everyone backstage knows everyone involved. And they're all talking, and they're all you know, getting more details. So bit by bit, details are coming out. And eventually, probably the homicide detectives released more information. Either they called Vince, or they released it to local media who was out there. I, I, I mean, I don't know that they would have called Vince McMahon directly or if they would have gone to, I mean, possibly the only reason I could see them calling Vince McMahon is because he was the initial um, complainant in the police report uh, or when police took the information, he would have been the complainant so they may have called him back or they may have just gone out and given an update to you know the press corps who was out there and it was dispersed that way. Either way, by the end of the show, they're learning this is not what we thought it was. This is not a, um, a tragic loss of one of our performers and his family. Chris Benoit is a killer. And it appears at this point like he killed his family. So the next night, uh, WC WWE has an ECW taping. ECW is, I think they did their shows on Tuesday. <clears throat> and WWE has to start going into damage control because this is quickly gaining steam as a major national story. Not just a wrestling story. This is a major national top story headline on every news network in America. And so I want to read you the quote that Vince McMahon puts out um, on ECW the night after. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Last night on Monday Night Raw, the WWE presented a special tribute show recognizing the career of Chris Benoit. 
However, now, some 26 hours later, the facts of this horrific tragedy are now apparent. Therefore, other than my comments, there will be no mention of Mr. Benoit's name tonight. On the contrary, tonight's show will be dedicated to everyone who has been affected by this terrible incident. This evening marks the first step of the healing process. Tonight, WWE performers will do what they do better than anyone else in the world, entertain you. And I believe, if not close to it, that might have been the last time Chris Benoit was ever mentioned on WWE programming. I think Vince did one more um, statement before SmackDown, which would have been Thursday or Friday of that week. Um, and WWE has pretty much erased Chris Benoit in a lot of respects from their existence. He's not on any more DVDs. They hide his image. They do not say his name. They've withdrawn him from as much WWE content as they can. Now, if you have Peacock and you go watch the WWE Network, you can find him. They have not erased his matches from old pay-per-views he was on, but anything going forward post-2007, I don't know that he's ever been mentioned. He's essentially been erased because they were under intense scrutiny and intense criticism following this. But let's, before we get to that, I want to talk a little about um, what happened in that house. Um, this is a copy of the um, this is a copy of the autopsy report that was put out by Georgia investigators. Um, so, as far as the death with Nancy, um, there were some um, drugs found in her system that appeared to be um, at prescription level. It appeared he had strangled her, and there was also, and she was bound at the, you know, her feet and her wrists, and died of asphyxiation. Um, and it looks like she had made have been um, hurt in it, like he possibly had, had battered her in some fashion, and he left a Bible by her. Um, their son Daniel um, also died of asphyxia. Um, they say he was. Um, he did have something in his system, like maybe Chris had put something in his system to where he would not be conscious at the time of his death. Um, and he laid Bibles by both his son and his wife. And then eventually, um, at some point, he took his own life by trying to break his neck or strangle himself on weightlifting equipment in their house. And that is how they died. Um, one thing that was brought in this, and I want to read you one, most of his autopsy report um, looks to be, I'm sorry, is my director talking in my ear? Thank you so much. Uh, most of my, um, most of the autopsy um, says, you know, he was normal and it showed the, the, the evidence of strangulation. But post-mortem toxicology relieved, uh, revealed blood levels of alprazolam, um, hydrocodone in his system, which fell into the therapeutic range, but this one was important. There was an elevated level of testosterone in his urine, which with an elevated testosterone and epitestosterone ratio, signifying an exogenous source of testosterone. So there was a lot of concern because there was also um, testosterone and steroids, believe, or something like that, found in the house. A lot of uh, different types of um, pharmaceuticals in the house. So there was a lot of talk initially uh, in the national press about was this due to steroids or roid rage. They later found out that he had been getting testosterone from a doctor, then um, that offset the lack of steroids that he, he no longer was using. Um, that doctor, and I want to mention this, a uh, guy by the name of Dr. Phil Aston, eventually was sentenced later on for overprescribing medication. He died in prison. Um, 
So that was interesting. And there was also talk after this. Uh, I mentioned Chris Nowinski earlier in the podcast. He's a, a neuroscientist, and he had um, Benoit's brain scan because there was concerns about CTE. And I want to read you a quote here from the Sports Legacy Institute that he worked with. Um, this is a quote uh, that I got out of Science Daily. When the Sports Legacy Institute approached Michael Benoit, who is Chris's father, about testing Chris's brain as part of the Sports Legacy Project, our goal was to determine if there was evidence of CTE caused by repeated trauma to the head sustained during Chris Benoit's career. We have now confirmed multiple concussions are part of his medical history, along with clinical symptoms associated with CTE. Because my SLI colleagues and I have found evidence of CTE in the brains of four former professional football players, we felt an examination of Chris Benoit's brain may bring awareness to CTE's existence outside of boxers and football players. The findings of the CTE in Chris Benoit suggest that there may be a common syndrome among athletes who suffer multiple head injuries in contact sports. There's also talk that he had the brain of an elderly dementia patient. Um, that was a concern. WWE pushed back against this because they were in damage control mode. This is from um, a statement from WWE lawyers. While this is new emerging science, the WWE is unaware of the veracity of any of these tests. This was uh, given to ESPN, be it for Chris Benoit or Andrew Martin, who was test. Dr. Omalu um, claims that Mr. Benoit had a brain that resembled an 85-year-old with Alzheimer's, which would lead to one to ponder how Mr. Benoit could have found his way to an airport, let alone being able to remember all the moves and information that is required to perform in the ring. So there was a lot of debate about drug use, drug abuse it, with Benoit, with the industry, steroid possible usage. Was WWE's recent wellness policy they had instituted good enough? It was on every network. It was all over the place. There's also concerns about CTE. I want to start with the drug use issues. One of the people to speak out about this, because I remember watching this, all, all the cable networks when this came out, I saw Kevin Nash. I saw the Ultimate Warrior on there. I think I may, may have seen Road Warrior Animal, but the guy who I remember the most was Mark Merrow. Mark Merrow was at the forefront of coming out and speaking up against WWE. Some people you know, disagree with his take on it, but he was very visible. First, I want to hear, and we talked to Mark Mara about this in a recent episode of Going Ringside. First, I want to show you an episode, uh, a clip from Mark Mara talking about the injuries that wrestlers get and how difficult it is to be a pro wrestler beating your body up every night. Here's our first clip with Mark Mara. I very seldom ever got hurt in boxing, football, hockey, and I, I, I've had now 14 surgeries from wrestling. Mm. So, I mean, it, it, the thing was, is like, for example, you know, at the, in the NFL, that they go to the Super Bowl, and then after the Super Bowl, they're, they're off for five or five or six months. You know, in professional wrestling, we have our, our Super Bowl is WrestleMania. We're at Monday Night Raw the next night. You know, yeah. so your body never really gets time to fully heal, and uh, the the trauma you take night after night, you don't realize how much you get slammed on your back, and you don't always land right. Sometimes you get tweaked a little bit, and you land on your elbow or your shoulder or something, and and then it's constant injuries. And that's why so many of the guys um, were taking a lot of pain medication. And it, it affected, you know, their health. And uh, obviously it was very detrimental. But I'm I'm proud to say they got very strict drug testing now. And you don't see as many guys dying. So by this point, this is 2007. Mark Merrow has essentially been out of the industry for a while. He's an ex-wrestler at this point. 
And he is one of those ones who went on the news. I remember, I think, an argument with him and Steve Blackman on a cable news network, which you could probably find out there. And Mark was very outspoken about this, saying that WWE or the wrestling industry in general is not doing enough to protect its athletes. And, I mean, he did have a point. There were a lot of athletes dying young, as I talked about earlier in the podcast, for a variety of reasons. Um, so he speaks out. And I asked him about that, and it was kind of uncomfortable. And I'm like, Mark, I need to ask you, tell me about this Chris Benoit uh, chapter in your life. How did that go for you? He said it was not easy. He said he felt he needed to speak out. But this is what he told me happened when he spoke out publicly criticizing WWE following the Chris Benoit murder-suicide. Now, in 2007 rolls around, probably the hardest story in the history of wrestling. I, I, I honestly can't think of anything worse than the Chris Benoit story. You became very outspoken on that story. I saw you on um, the news networks nationally speaking about it, uh, no longer an active wrestler. Was that difficult process for you to go through? Because obviously it is it is as personal of an issue for, I think, the wrestling community as anything we'd ever seen. Well, you know, to this day, I'm 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 kind of blackballed from the WWE. I I I I can't go to none of their events. I've never been invited to anything. Um, but I stood up for what was right. You know, we there were so many guys that were dying. You know, and and with 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 the steroids, the drugs, the the uh, um, pain medication, it, it just it just got to be too much. And so I stood up. But I got to tell you, if people like myself and some others didn't. They now have the strictest drug testing, like Olympic drug testing. Now, you very seldom see a wrestler die from a drug overdose. Um, they also have where anyone that ever wrestled in a WWE ring can get free drug and alcohol rehab. I don't care who you are or how, how long you've been out of the wrestling business. Let's say tomorrow I, I, I got addicted to drugs and I need to go to rehab. They would pay for it. And that all stemmed from guys like myself speaking up years ago. So even though they may vilify me or blackball me or whatever, I think about how many lives may have been saved because some guys like myself and some others stood up. Was that hard to do at the time? Because I'm sure you're getting you're getting pressure, you know, just as a guy, no, you know, people, it, yeah. friends and colleagues, that type of thing. Yes, I mean, yes, obviously you lose a lot of friendships. And, um, but at the end of the day, it's, you gotta be proud of who's looking back at you in the mirror. I mean, life passes so quickly. And, um, you know, you gotta be, you just gotta be proud of what you're, you're doing. And so that's what Mark Marrow says was his experience following the Benoit murder-suicide when he spoke out. And WWE had a lot of changes at this point. Not only was this something where the news networks and the media as a whole is focusing on your industry and the safety of it, um, you know, Congress even got involved for a short time and started analyzing whether pro wrestling was an industry that w had enough safety regulations. Um, Vince is on. There's interviews out there where he did um, interviews himself, you know, uh, trying to deflect blame of this it was CTE or steroids, but it was an act of deliberation on um, the part of Chris Benoit. But WWE starts making changes. Not long after this, they change the rating of their program. They go to TVPG, and you no longer see um, as much blood on the show. They be, start to become a little more family-oriented programming, kind of like they were in the 1980s. Um, so that happens. You no longer see, or very seldom do you see a chair shot to the head anymore, because those were very common back in the day. Um, and 
so there are considerable changes. And uh, the Chris Benoit thing is something I always thought was interesting to watch when you see him brought up in like pro wrestling fan groups, like on chat rooms, and someone brings up Chris Benoit. And you see an interesting debate that always unfolds. On the one hand, you have people saying, how dare you bring up Chris Benoit, he's a killer. And on the other hand, people say, well, he was such a good performer, we can't forget that. And that, that happens, that's out there a lot when you see people bring up Chris Benoit. There was never really a good definitive cause, and everyone looked for one, from the, the, the toxicology and, and whether or not drugs played a role, but also the CTE and, and what was going on with his brain. So I talked to Dr. Stephen Bloomfield. He's a forensic psychologist, as I said earlier in the show. He um, has testified in many murder trials. He's not a wrestling guy, but he knows um, the psychopathy of killers. He's interviewed many killers. I've been in the courtroom with him many times when he's testified in murder trials I've covered. So I wanted to bring him in, get his perspective on this, um, just kind of his analysis, because he is an expert on this type of thing. And here's what we got from Dr. Stephen Bloomfield, a forensic psychologist, on this issue with respect primarily to Benoit's brain. Well, we are joined now by Dr. Uh, Stephen Bloomfield on this issue of the Benoit murder and, and the, really the investigation of this uh, murder-suicide case. Dr. Bloomfield, thanks for joining us. Tell our viewers a little about your background, and you've been in a lot of murder trials over the years. Yes, I have. Uh, I'm a forensic psychologist. Forensic psychology is a part of clinical psychology that deals with people involved in the legal system. I, uh, I've been involved in lots of uh, first-degree murder cases. I just testified last week in the St. John's case uh, of a juvenile who was charged not with first-degree murder, but with, with murder. Uh, I've done, uh, uh, interviewed lots, hundreds, more than 100 uh, people who have uh, committed murder. I've spent a good deal amount of time uh, before the COVID on death row uh, interviewing people. And um, and so that and that's the top end, the hardest part of my practice. Uh, I interviewed lots of people for different reasons who are involved in the legal system, but murder is... Uh, is the most difficult and uh, and um, it, juveniles who murder are sure. the, the most difficult. Well, in this case of Mr. Benoit, he, he it, it, the reports are it was this murder suicide happened over a weekend period, roughly a three day period. He uh, killed his wife, um, killed his young son, possibly had drugged his young son beforehand or some of the reports, and then eventually committed suicide by hanging. Um, right. After this all came out, because of what he did for a living, there was a lot of questions about brain damage. And some of yes. the scans that had been come out that he had a possibly early signs of dementia, possibly the brain, the equivalent of an elderly person. Uh, can we take anything away from this? This was an unusual case with the amount of damage to his brain. Well, yeah, yeah, it's becoming. It got. It's gotten a lot more attention uh, lately because of the NFL. Uh, what was his name? Hernandez, who committed the murder yes. in Massachusetts. Um, and then people go back in their lives and see how much head injury they have. Uh, and uh, so, so head injuries generally, um, not a hundred percent of the time, but a serious head injury or multiple head injuries 
create uh, not only brain dysfunction that, that mimics or looks like uh, dementia, which really just means that the brain itself is deformed and, and, uh, and contracted, uh, but also creates incredible personality change. Um, so, you know, the brain is the seat of everything, and it, it, including cognitive things, but also including personality. And, you know, we talk a lot in my work, I talk a lot about how the brain is developed, particularly when I'm working uh, or, or talking about an adolescent or someone who's has a resentencing because they were sentenced as an adolescent and now come back. But the brain develops from the back to the front, the sides, the front of the brain is uh, the, the prefrontal lobes, cortex, and that's the executive functioning. That's the, that's the part that uh, allows us to make rational decisions and rational choices. And so when you have someone who's consistently hit in the head, particularly in the front, uh, some of the tapes of Mr. Benoit, you, you see him jumping, diving off yes. the side dive and then he would use his head to hit another uh, performer that's right right and that was his that was his thing he that's what he was known for uh but those many hits uh damaged the frontal lobe system executive functioning and so the brain starts operating in different systems the limbic system which is more emotional so the <clears throat> people with that kind of brain injury uh, start operating less rationally and not psychotically, but less less concerns with decision making, poor decision making, and they they operate more uh, emotionally. So you have you have a man uh, in a profession that uh, is certainly an aggressive profession. Yes, w whether it's violent or not, I, you know that's some, some. I'll leave that to somebody else. But yeah, uh, and, but then you have but the blows to the head are real. I mean. Really? That eventually that cracking on the skull night after night eventually takes its toll. Exactly. It's, uh, you know, yeah, people talk about professional wrestling, what it is, and, you know, MMA and all of that. But, yeah, the, the blows to the head, if you watch tapes, uh, there's some tapes of him wrestling on, uh, on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, and so if you watch tapes of him, you see that he, use, he, he hits his head a lot, and mm -hmm. his head is hit. I, I think I saw a tape too, where a couple of times he's been hit in the head with a steel chair or yep. out of the out of the ring. Yeah. And so you have uh, you you have uh, um, this constant uh, barrage to the uh, uh, the head, uh, and so it, it creates. Uh, so it's real. I mean, that part is absolutely real. Would you suspect uh, that? the personality changes would have been noticeable leading up to this or or could you be functional even if you maybe are dealing with stuff that's similar to a dementia patient yeah i think it's it, it's you know dementia has a big cognitive deficit and although the brain looks the same as a dementia patient um uh the cognitive uh issues um the cognitive issues are um, the, really what you're looking at in dementia, and what you, when you're looking at when you're looking at personality. <clears throat> he was in a profession where aggression was encouraged, so if he's aggressive, 
in that profession, um, uh, it, it, people wouldn't notice it unless you started acting erratically and bizarrely. I know I've listened to some tapes of people who say that he was a gentle giant and he was a, he was a really quiet man. Some of that stuff goes buried. It just, and then it explodes. Then you just don't know. There's just, there's just an eruption and um, people get paranoid. We don't know, obviously, because he committed suicide, but the worst things that happen to people with those kinds of things, they start getting paranoid and they start believing things that aren't real. And, and there was a bad. lot of uh, debate afterwards of how much the brain damage contributed to this and whether it did. And they have to base that off an autopsy report. Would an autopsy report be pretty conclusive on that? Or, or is it really hard after a it, suicide to determine the cause well, of it, factors? It, yeah, it'd be hard. It wouldn't be hard to say that there was brain damage, and that's why people were talking about that the brain looks like uh, a dementia brain. But it'd be, it's hard after the fact to see what the effects of it were. The other thing was that he was using steroids, as I understood. Uh, At some point he had. For, that's somewhat unclear that he may have in the past, but still um, – you know, had some other medication in his system. That's that's one of the debates on if he had some sort of something in his system. Yeah, that's correct. Right. So, you know, ster steroids are also very problematic. Sure. Um, um, and and also create personality change, and we've seen that among amongst people. Um, you know, and people and in acts of rage like these. Um, in your experience, can they come out of nowhere? Are they something that someone is always having privately, or is that hard to all, say? All of the above, I think. Uh, sometimes uh, the person was uh, full of rage and acting out all along, uh, and we didn't know it. There's some issues, domestic violence, some fear issues. And then, as I said earlier, there's there's the paranoia problem uh, because we don't know what was happening in his brain and if he started to get paranoid and started to be get delusional about what was happening in his family and his life he'd start acting irrationally now you know delusions are um bizarre strongly held beliefs that are unshakable you can't you can't speak to a person with a delusion and say oh, that's not true because they say well if you understood it it would be true uh, so, uh, so th there's that possibility, there's possibilities that there was a history that we don't know about that wasn't reported. Um, there's possibility that he, he tried to, uh, that he was having, he had some, he had some outlets for rage. I mean, his wrestling style was different than, uh, other wrestlers. I mean, he yeah, really he was very intense and brutal. Yeah, there was a clip in one YouTube video where he he made a mistake in the choreography and uh, he kicked the guy in the head, and the guy found him in the back in a, in a in a training room doing squats and said, "What what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing?" And he said, "I have to do like a hundred squats because I I made a mistake. I never should have done it. Go five hundred squats or something like that." So yeah, he was obsessive about his. Uh, Ability, and plus he's in a profession where, you know, it, it, one of the critiques of, of football, I mean, I'm a football fan, and but one of the critiques of football is, um, 
young men are, are encouraged to be, you know, aggressive, hit, you know. Uh, when I was in high school, which is a long time ago, <laughs> but when I was in high school, I played football. Not well, but I played. Mm -hmm. And I remember the coach saying, nothing starts until that first hit. So go get hit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's encouraged. It, it, well, Dr. It, Bloomfield, it, thank you so much for the insights on this. Uh, just a tragic story. And uh, it is. we really appreciate you being able to help us out here and understanding a little more uh, on brain and, and the psychology here. Thank you, Dr. Bloomfield. Thank you. So one thing in, in going over that and the autopsy report and what the brain scans were is there's been debate for, I guess, 16 years now, but there's never really been a definitive answer. Um, it is something that you, we may never know the full answer to it, um, but it certainly is the, the thing that um, affected the industry unlike anything else and, and really chilled the industry because it was definitely real life and death. Um, and I just want to give you, if you want to get more information on the Benoit tragedy, a few places that I looked at that I think are good. Chris Benoit, or I'm sorry, not Chris, Chris Jericho. Jericho was close with Benoit for a number of years. Um, he has his Talk as Jericho podcast. So episode 259, 259, there is Nancy Benoit's sister talking in depth about this. Episode 11, uh, 11. Looks like he talks to Chavo Guerrero about the final days about it. Uh, those are worth it. Dark Side of the Ring has done a lengthy documentary on this. There's other documentaries out there on YouTube you can find pretty easily. Um, so keep that in mind. But it is, it is the tragedy um, unlike anything we'd ever seen. We had seen the Owen Hart, obviously, another huge tragedy for the industry. But you do notice, um, as Mark Marrow said earlier, fewer wrestlers are dying young which is a positive out of it, but it is not totally um, gone. I, um, while we were doing this podcast, I got information, and this is some sad breaking news, um, on the death of an ex-WWE wrestler, Sarah Lee. Um, Fox News is reporting uh, the day of this recording. She was on the Tough Enough, performed in NXT for a while, um, died by a suicide of lethal cocktail of alcohol and pills. That's according to reports outside of Bexar County, Texas, the medical examiner's office. Um, so, and she was only 30. So it, it's not gone away totally, but it's not gone away in any, in any aspect of life. But the sheer volume of death in wrestling, it, it appears it's not on the level as it was. I mean, the, those early 2000s, it like, seemed like it was uh, constant with Hawk and Kurt Henning, Rick Rude, Big Boss Man. Um, just one after another, Miss Elizabeth. So uh, this was our venture into maybe the saddest episode we'll ever do, and that is the, um, the murder-suicide of Chris Benoit and his wife Nancy and, and their son Daniel. Um, so I appreciate you sticking with us throughout this. Uh, I'm glad you could join us and get us next time on Going Ringside. This has been Going Ringside with The Local Station, brought to you every Wednesday on your favorite podcast player on News 4 Jax Plus, as well as the News 4 Jax YouTube channel.